the American History Podcast bonus episode. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. Today we have a special treat. This is a celebratory episode. What are we celebrating? It's our third anniversary. Surprisingly, we've made it to three years. And honestly, there were a few times that I thought we might not. This whole podcasting thing, it's not as easy as you might think just sitting there at home listening. But anyways, um, today we are discussing, appropriately enough, President Franklin D. Roosevelt and his third term. Now, this is jumping the gun a bit because, obviously, the main narrative is working its way to the presidency of FDR. However, this topic just seemed appropriate at this point in time. Now, I'm not an expert on presidential history, so to assist me in this endeavor, to take a sneak peek ahead, I've invited my good friend Jerry Landry of the Presidencies Podcast to join me for this special episode. I mean, who better to talk presidents and presidential history? Honestly, I couldn't think of anyone else, so without further ado... Let's get started. All right. So, Jerry, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing good. How about yourself? I am probably better than I deserve to be, but I'm not going to complain too much because uh, somebody might hear me and the way 2020 is going, <laughs> that's not a good thing. <laughs> I hear you there. <laughs> so let's get into the meat of this. We're talking FDR and his third term. So just kind of general question what what would you say is your overall assessment of of president roosevelt you know the myth kind of that's out there is that he rescued america from the great depression he rescued the world from the nazis and the japanese he rescued americans from fear even i mean he had a superman cape on I, this guy must have been tired um but you know um but all kidding aside what what would our assessment overall be of of President Roosevelt, just in general? Well, FDR is one of those interesting figures in American history and in the, the history of the American presidency because you know, there was so much that happened during his tenure of office, yeah. it, both domestically and internationally. And it's, and I know that was one thing whenever, um, because before I had the podcast, I started reading a presidential biography about each president from the very beginning. And uh-huh. with FDR, I actually read two because it just didn't feel it didn't feel like one was going to be enough. I needed <laughs> more perspective. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 12 years, you know, in office, that's a long time. And there was so much in that 12 years. But you know, to your point, he has, he's become one of those figures that is almost on this, this pedestal, you know, he's, he's this larger than life figure. Whenever you start looking at his actual presidency, I think that you get a sense of some things that he did right. But as with any president, he wasn't perfect. He made mistakes. Um, Case in point, you look at the New Deal, you look at the programs that were set up as part of the New Deal and in response to the Depression, and 
in many ways, just the fact that he was doing something and the administration was trying something was more beneficial than some of the programs that were set up. And mm -hmm. in some ways, it was almost doing too much and kind of stumbling over one another in the administration. And you look at his leadership style, and that was – it was very chaotic. Um, he would actually have people in his administration. He'd be talking to one person, and he'd give them a task, and then they'd leave, and somebody else would come in, and he'd set them on pretty much the same task. <laughs> and so there were there were these redundancies, but it was also almost an experiment. You know, mm -hmm. you would see how things would go on either end, and and he, of course, in many cases these folks wouldn't know that they were working on the same thing <laughs> and he would see which one worked, which one didn't and, you know, divert resources there. And it was very chaotic, but then again, you look at the time and, and you wonder, well, maybe that was a good thing, mm -hmm. but really in terms of the response to the depression and economic historians can speak to this probably better than I, but you look at the economy and it really started recovering once we got into the war yeah. because of all the production that was in place, all the infrastructure that had to be put into place to achieve the war efforts. That was what really got us out of the depression and, and helped the economy. But to what I said earlier, the fact that he was doing something, it was such a different response than what was seen under the Hoover administration. And also with FDR, he had a way about him. He, A, his utilization of new technologies, of the radio, of his fireside chats. And again, those nowadays when folks in general think of FDR, they think of there were hundreds and hundreds of fireside chats and there really weren't it was just that he was so effectual with the ones that he did likewise yeah. with his speeches he conveyed a confidence and an air not just of confidence but of familiarity he made people feel like he understood them and that the psychological benefits of his leadership were arguably some of the best things about his presidency but also what you said about um rescuing the world from the nazis and the japanese um one of the things that i try and stress with my podcasts looking at each presidency in some ways we place too much emphasis on the one person in the office because you can have one person in the office and if they don't have the people to back them up, then they really can't accomplish anything. John Adams right. would be able to speak to that quite well. Mm -hmm. With FDR, it wasn't just his efforts. It was the efforts of so many people. And that also was part of his strength of leadership is in bringing people together bringing people onto the team you see this in the ramp up to the war he 
brings in a new Secretary of War and Secretary of the Navy even before we're in the war. In 1940, in June, both of them are prominent Republicans. The Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, who was a previous Secretary of War and a previous Secretary of State. Likewise with the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, Mm-hmm. He was one of Teddy Roosevelt's rough riders. He had actually been the Republican vice presidential nominee in 1936. These were prominent people. They were very well connected. And he knew that, A, he needed their talents, their skills mm-hmm. at, at leading these departments, but also having Republicans and prominent Republicans in these important positions. That's... FDR was a great politician. He realized that it couldn't just be Democrats leading the war charge. He needed people from the Republican Party. He needed people who normally would be in opposition to him to make this not just a a Democratic or Republican effort, but to make it an American effort. I think that's probably – you hit on two great points that I think speak to his – um, his success. I think first, um, his use of technology, his use of the radio, um, he was just a master at this new thing that I don't think the Republicans, um, his opponents really understood yet. And, um, then second is just his mastery of being able to bring people in, you know, it's that old adage, get them into the tent. So they're pissing outside of the tent rather than standing outside pissing in. Um, I think he does. He's uh, he's just a master of that. Um, I think probably a few more than one politician could probably learn from that today. <laughs> Not that I can think of any that might be able to learn from that, but um, I know it's hard to imagine, huh? <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe one or two. You know, I I don't know. Um, might be a good idea. Hmm. But uh, <laughs> oh, great. So let's see. Um, before we get too far off track here. Um, now let's look at his, because we, we said we would talk more about his third term. And um, this is a fascinating time in history. And I mean, you kind of touched on it too. I mean, his, his administration, whichever one you want to pick, I mean, talk about things going wrong. Um, it's kind of like 2020 before 2020 was even thought of yet. You know, you've got the Great Depression, you've got World War II, all this stuff just going on. And so he decides to run for this third term. Um, why did he decide to break with tradition? Uh, what, what did the American people think of this? And, you know, what is your assessment? I realize that that some folks kind of look back and see it as really controversial. And, you know, maybe even somebody like myself, who's pretty cynical, would look back on it. And in a cynical way, say, oh, well, well, of course, you know, he always meant to. This is King FDR here we're talking about. But, I mean, let's try to remove that. And and was this an easy decision for him or, or you know, was it was it something that he just kind of agonized over? Well, and it's interesting because I um, just recently did a special episode of presidencies on the election of 1940. And that was one of the things that really drew me to trying to explore that election a bit more and and breaking it down, seeing what was going on. Mm -hmm. So in terms of FDR, and to go ahead and put it into the historical context um, from that time, 
basically every president prior to FDR had only run for two terms um, at most. And this was a precedent that was started with George Washington. George Washington was honestly, George Washington really didn't even want to serve out the entirety of his first term, but he, he was convinced to, to stick with it. And when it came to reelection for a second term, he was convinced Hamilton, Jefferson, pretty much anybody and everybody was telling him, you know, we've got this partisan divide, this factional divide that's starting, and we need you as a rallying figure. We need you to keep the country together. You know, this is still a new country. And so he agreed reluctantly to stand for a second term. But when it came to the third term, he saw, well, being in for two terms hasn't really solved things. People are more divided than ever. I'm tired. I really need to go home. And so he set that two-term precedent. And most of the other presidents, they I don't know that they really thought of it like that. Like, oh, well, I've got to do what Washington did rather than, you know, we've been in for two terms and we're tired and ready to go home. <laughs> yeah. But we did have kind of a one. Job. Exactly. I mean, you know, you think eight years of your life in this position and increasingly the presidency becomes more complex as the bureaucracy grows larger, as the nation grows larger. You can see why people would be ready to say, I'm done. We did have one, though, um, that one president that was put up or was going to be put up for a third term. Ulysses Grant decided you know, stick with the precedent and not run for re-election in 1876. But by 1880, he was a popular figure still, even though he had had um, allegations of corruption. His his administration was rather corrupt, but he was still seen as being a good leader, as somebody even if they didn't believe in his administration, they could believe in him. And so the Republican Party did flirt with the idea of running Grant for a third term. Ultimately, James Garfield got the nomination and went on to win the election. But that was really the only instance that we had a president that was potentially going to go for that third run. So, you know, we get up to FDR's second term. And the second term was rough. He had one reelection in a landslide. I mean, Alf Landon only won the states of Vermont and Maine. He didn't even win his home state of Kansas. And so FDR came in with this great mandate. The problem was one of the first battles that he tried to win was against the Supreme Court. Supreme Court was starting to um, overturn New Deal legislation. And so he came up with this whole scheme of making more seats on the Supreme Court and in the federal judiciary overall to give him a chance to pack the courts with pro-FDR and pro-New Deal um, judges. This was a an abysmal failure and it cost him so much political capital. There really wasn't much that he achieved in the second term, except many, many headaches for himself. Mm -hmm. So 
you start to see as 1940s getting closer, he does have this point where he starts to consider, well, okay, who else can take my place? Who can I get behind as a successor? There really wasn't anybody. In his administration, the people that he was closest to all had some flaws, whether it was that they just weren't that popular or in some cases they had health issues. They were even, you know, in, in some cases decades older than him. Yeah. Um, there really are, are in the case of, of some folks, they were opposed to some of the new new deal legislation. And so he wouldn't feel comfortable handing it over to them, but he did actually start making plans. Like he had, um, this cottage built that was going to be his retirement home. He, um, he made plans for his presidential library. He had actually signed a contract with Collier's magazine to basically be a, an editor, but also have a column that would run regularly. And he would be earning the same amount that he was as president. Um, Collier's was willing to give him much more, but he said, you know, I wouldn't feel right taking a higher salary than I had as president. So yeah, they, they were like, well, we'll keep you at that pay level. But increasingly, and in, in, as the war started in Europe, as there was increasing unrest in the international scene, people started to get scared. And likewise, FDR was scared. You know, it, you, you get the sense that people were starting to see, you know, no, America didn't want to get involved with another foreign war. And as 1940 started, the idea of entering World War II was very unpopular. Yeah. Even though there were people both in the Democratic as well as the Republican Party who felt that we needed to help the allies. We needed to get into the war. But it was still, by and large, an unpopular idea. And FDR slowly but surely came to realize that there was nobody that he could trust handing it over to. And especially considering that at, at the beginning of 1940, he didn't know who the Republican nominee was going to be. And there were many prominent Republicans who were staunch isolationist they it didn't matter what happened it didn't matter what hitler did it didn't matter what anybody did they were not going to get involved in the war mm -hmm. and as he looked at the situation he increasingly came to the conclusion that it had to be him yeah yeah that's i mean it's it's always what i remember reading is that it was kind of this this decision of who do I give it, my legacy off to, number one. But then number two, you've also got, you know, who's the other guy going to be? You've got World War II starting up, and it's, I mean, what do you do? Do you change horses in midstream, or do you kind of go forward? Or, or you know, that, that's a hard decision. I don't know that I'd, I'd want to have to make that. Um, I'm, now, I'm sure he didn't either, but. <laughs> yeah, 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 but that's why he was getting paid the big bucks, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, Good luck with that, buddy. Um, okay, so one of the things um, that I've noted about the 1940 election is that there appears to have been at least some 
somewhat some foreign interference um, to help FDR. There was an, a political article, Politico article back um, in 2017 that alleged that the British kind of pioneered this use of, uh, I hate these terms, but um, fake news um, that we, we hear about today, you know, dirty tricks, propaganda maybe to help FDR in, in office. I'm not sure there's really a question here, but just kind of wondered, you know, what what do you have you read about that? Um, what did you think about about that? Well, and it was interesting. Um, so really in terms of the presidential race, um, it almost wasn't needed. And that's what I was thinking. I'm like, did he really need it? Exactly. Um, but you could see an a, a given the situation, you could understand that the the British government was highly motivated because at this point, 1940, and you think about some of the movies that have come out um, in recent years, Dunkirk, um, uh, The Darkest Hour, that were around this time period, and it was a very bleak period. It looked yeah. like Hitler and Nazi Germany was going to be able to invade the British Isles and take England. Um, it, it was a dark time. And so you could understand their motivations for wanting to do anything that they could to get help, to try and survive. But with the presidential race, they're really wasn't that much of a need. Um, and, and you look at the the Republican side of the, the fence in 1940, and the party is still rather divided. Now, it wasn't quite as, you know, that, that there was no chance because in the 1938 midterms, Republicans had actually done quite well at the polls. Mm-hmm. So it was seen as being a possible chance for somebody, and especially this would be the third election um, that they would be going up against potentially FDR. Um, it was seen as an opportunity, but who was going to be the nominee? And you look at some of the candidates, there were some pretty prominent candidates, you know, Robert Taft. Uh, was a senator from Ohio. He was an outspoken isolationist. You see Thomas Dewey from New York. He was seen as being kind of the the youthful candidate, um, kind of a breath of fresh air, but he was still a political novice. He still didn't understand how things worked because he he really wasn't a national politician at the time. He was known around the nation, but he really hadn't gotten to that national level to really understand how things functioned and, and how, the, how to operate the party. But then the ultimate candidate, Wendell Wilkie, Wendell Wilkie was an industrialist. He, he was a lawyer by trade. He had never served in a, a, an elected office. He had never run for anything before he became the Republican nominee for president in 1940. But he was also an internationalist. He was very outspoken about the dangers of 
Nazi Germany of completely leaving the Allies and in particular the British out to dry. He realized yeah. that there was going to be something that needed to be done. And ultimately he won the nomination. And so in terms of the British, no matter who won, it was going to be okay. They knew that they were going to have some kind of support. But the problem was, and again, getting back to Wilkie being a complete political novice, you know, he, he, in fact, like a, a, just a couple of years before he became the Republican nominee, he was a Democrat. <laughs> so he, he really didn't have the, the, the knowledge of the party apparatus to, if he had become president, it's quite possible that he wouldn't have been able to get anything done because Democrats would have been against him for being the new Republican president and Republicans would be against him because, you know, he, he, here was this guy who came out of nowhere and took everything from us. So <laughs> it, it, but they would have at least had somebody in the white house. So, you know, you, you see that, that there really wasn't as much. And, and, and you look at the polls, and even though Wilkie did start to narrow the polls leading up to the election, it was still, by and large, seen as Roosevelt's race to lose. And yeah. Roosevelt was a skilled politician. He wasn't going to lose it. But you get to what are the other parts of government? What does a president need in order to govern, he needs a relationship with Congress. And so there were certain instances, and one in particular, so um, Representative Hamilton Fish III, um, Republican from New York, he was a staunch isolationist. He opposed intervention in the war. And there were actually efforts made by British agents to kind of help in that election, help to steer it against Fish, which ultimately failed. Uh, Fish was reelected, not by as wide of a margin, but still reelected. But you can see the motivation there and you can see why they would do it. A, I, I do, and I don't know, I'd have to do more research to really get into the details of it, but my initial thought is, A, how many resources did they really have to divert? B, and again, you know, we, we get this idea of, oh, well, you know, these dirty tricks and backhanded deals. But you frame it in another way, and there were these partnerships that were established by people, you know, private citizens in the United States who just felt that, helping the allies and helping the British was the right thing to do. So they were keeping up these correspondences and, um, and efforts to try and help in any way that they could within the boundaries of the law. And, you know, was that, was that wrong? Was that dastardly? Was that some evil plot? Not really. It, it just, you know, it's just like efforts nowadays. We, we aren't, in isolation from the rest of the world. Um, we may be quarantined, but we can still reach out to, to folks in other parts of the world and communicate and learn and grow and, and help to shape ideas and help one another. That was happening. But then also 
this is something that has a historical precedent. You know, we like to think of, oh, well, there's never been interference in elections. <laughs> you know, this is this if it happened, it may be a new thing. But you go back to 1796, the election of 1796. So, again, Washington's the end of Washington's second term. He's not running for re-election. The two main candidates are John Adams, who is the then vice president, and Thomas Jefferson, who was the former secretary of state. Jefferson was very pro-French. Adams was very pro-British. And so the French minister to the U.S., uh, a guy named Pierre Auguste Adet, he actually writes these letters and publishes them in the newspapers to try and support Jefferson. Wow. <laughs> it, ulti it ultimately fails because nobody really understood, including people in America, they didn't really understand how the Electoral College worked. And so when he started publishing these letters, by and large, the electors had already been chosen and thus the election was pretty much done. But he did make this effort into in trying to blatantly interfere in the U.S. presidential election. So, you know, this is nothing new. Um, if you know any efforts that were made, it, it's nothing new. And likewise, the U.S. has interfered in elections before. Let's just call a spade a spade. Sure. Um, exactly. But you can also understand the motivation. Of course. I mean, I, th I think we're naive if we think that, number one, other countries don't try to interfere in our elections. And we're naive if we think that we don't interfere in other people's elections. Um, it happens all the time. We just, you know, we don't like it when it happens to us. But, um, you know, the reality is that's that's what happens in, in the real world, I guess you could say. Um Interesting. Now, this question kind of comes out of the previous one. If the British did help FDR get reelected to a third term, and um, I mean, I guess it's possible. I, there's no smoking gun for this, but um, there were there were some books in the 50s, and one in particular, and, and you still hear it today, um, is Charles Tansel's 1952 book, Backdoor to War, where he specifically um, says that FDR purposely was antagonizing the Japanese. Um, to try to induce them into war. Now, I'm wondering, do, do these have any merit? Um, that book mentions um, that FDR knew about Pearl Harbor ahead of time, something that I, I just don't see that as being um, being valid, But and there's no evidence for that, so I don't think you can make accusations unless you've got some evidence. But, you know, the idea of antagonizing Japan um, into attacking first, eh, I mean... It does seem kind of right out of the American playbook when it comes to um, foreign policy. When it, you know, we saw that with kind of the war with Mexico. Um, I mean, the, the remember the Maine, which was really, you know, kind of not exactly <laughs> what we what we said it was. So I'm just wondering, you know, this is a little bit of controversy and and kind of a fun, interesting topic. Doesn't really relate too much to. I guess it does. Because it was the third term, um, but what 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 have you read about that stuff, and what do you think about that? Well, and I think first and foremost, and, and there are these, 
and it is worth considering. To your point, you know, there is a history in in the story of America, in in American history, there is a precedent for um, some of this <clears throat> manipulating the situation. Sure. Um, case in and point, we're, you know, we're, the the Panama Canal. You mentioned the the main. But if you look at just the damage that was done in Pearl Harbor, and granted, it could have been much worse. Um, yeah. There, there are certain things that if if it hadn't happened as it did, it could have been even more detrimental to our ability to prosecute a war in the Pacific. But. Exactly. It, you see all the ships that were damaged and, and the ships that were sunk at Pearl Harbor and you have over 2000 killed. You have over a thousand that were wounded. This is a severe blow to the U S Navy and it takes time to recover, to really be able to, to push efforts in the Pacific. If right. you know, it, it just seems like, too large of a gamble mm-hmm. to have just said, okay, well, we'll just let that happen. The, th- the fact of the matter was, you know, a, there was, it was almost inevitable that there was going to be a conflict between the United States and Japan in the Pacific region, because, yeah. you know, the United States had such a vested interest in the Pacific, you know, at that point we were still in, in control of the Philippines. We had Guam, we have had the, um, had Hawaii. There was so much American presence in that region. And, and we had made a point over decades of asserting influence in the Pacific region. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you have the Japanese Empire that is expanding at a great rate. And part of the issue was that they needed to expand even more because in order to try and in order to try and stop the Japanese advance, the Roosevelt administration and the US government actually started to apply economic pressure you know there was an oil embargo in place um they embargoed certain products but oil was the big one um at that point japan in all the lands that they had to that point really didn't have an oil producing territory they needed the dutch east indies yep what we now know of as indonesia um or they needed oil from other places like America. America at that point was a large producer of oil and you know exported oil to various points in the globe and previously had exported oil to Japan. And you look at the the machinery that was being used, the the you know everything that was needed for prosecuting a war without petroleum Japan couldn't do that. 
Yeah. Japan couldn't could hardly hold on to the territory that they had claimed. And so there was this tension. But in that, and, and again, you can look at that, well, that's kind of antagonizing them. We knew that that would happen. Again, going back to historical precedent, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, that was one of the things that they argued for to keep us out of war mm-hmm. was to apply economic pressure. The Embargo Act during Jefferson's presidency, which didn't work, it was a, an abysmal failure, <laughs> but it was based on this same idea, applying pressure. And, and part of the reason it was a failure was that at that point, we said, okay, well, we're not going to trade with Britain and France. And Britain and France said, okay, we don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're giving you more than you are giving us, so... Have fun with that. But in the 20th century, that concept could potentially work. And so that's what the Roosevelt administration was doing. It wasn't necessarily antagonizing them to war. It, It was meant to try and stop the advance and to try and preclude a war. But that wasn't that wasn't how the Japanese government at the time wanted to play this out. And so they figured let's strike the Americans first. Let's try and strike a good blow at Pearl Harbor. Then let's take the Dutch East Indies, get the resources that we need. And then we can use those to bring all of the Pacific or, or at least a good portion of the Pacific. Let's go ahead and, and get it so that we're in a good position to be able to match the American firepower, the American efforts. Also, by that point, they had formed the Axis Alliance, so they knew we get into war with the U.S., Germany's going to get into war with the U.S., Italy's going to get into war with the U.S. We've got backup. Um, In terms of military planning, if things had worked out like they want it that could have potentially worked it just didn't it's one of those things with life things rarely go according to plan exactly <laughs> god that's the <laughs> the story of, of i think almost everybody's life for the last year or so <laughs> uh, it, it is the story of 2020 absolutely <laughs> um what a year this has been so now we're, we're talking fdr's third term what is our overall assessment of his third term compared to, let's say, his second term? I mean, obviously, his fourth term is horrible, <laughs> at least from a personal yeah. standpoint. It, 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 it didn't work I, out well for him. <laughs> um, you know, his fourth term is, whoo, uh, that one was a doozy. Um, his second term was uh, kind of that typical, it's almost like the second term curse, right? You know, um, Seems like every president's second term is kind of a bad four years in office, and things just really go wrong. Um, Which also helps explain why so many didn't go for the third term. Yeah. <laughs> After yeah. that bad second term, it's like, okay, we're done. <laughs> yeah, Cashing out. <laughs> a great example is probably Lincoln, right? He's like, uh, no, I don't think we're going to do that third term here. And <laughs> yeah, we're done. Um, good, goodness sakes. But um, I mean, you can just go down the line and it seems like that second term is, is 
is a nightmare. Um, FDR's obviously first term is is seen as somewhat successful. I mean, he got reelected, um, so we can we can argue, as I'm, I know economic historians do, that well, okay, he didn't really solve the the Great Depression. Some say he made it worse. Okay, um, but he must have been somewhat successful because he got reelected for a second term. Um, his second term was not so positive, but you know, his third term he gets reelected again. So I guess how bad was it? Um, where, how would, what would we say about his third term overall? So I would say that the third term was better than the second term and mainly because, so a, it was a completely different focus than his previous two terms. Um, I, I know that, that a number of folks who study FDR, they kind of look at his presidency as being in two phases. The first phase being more of a domestic focus and the second phase being more of this, this global international focus. And so it's, it's almost, it's almost like it's, it's a new start, but the problem is we were really still ramping up for war. Mm Mm-hmm. There had been some efforts in the second term to start to do some preparations. They had put in the um, first peacetime draft, yeah. actually, like right before the 1940 election, which was interesting because they actually um, did the first draft pick, um, the the first pull of, of draft numbers right before the election. And his advisors and, and prominent Democrats were begging him, please just put this off until after the election. We know it has to happen, but we just need you to hold off for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and he said, no. He said, this is what he knew this was coming. He knew that that there was conflict ahead. And whether it was the United States having to defend itself or having to get involved we need it to be prepared. And he wanted to make it clear kind of where we were going. He wanted people to have that idea in mind when they went to the polls, because again, that would give him a stronger mandate in the third term. Should he win reelection to do what needed to be done? And so you see a great deal of the third term is trying to find victories where he could where where the the military could find victories holding off on conflicts that they knew the United States wasn't ready for yet and trying to build all of this infrastructure and face down any criticism of it and it's there's so much that happens in that third term. There's so much to deal with. And by the time you get to 1944, you get a sense of just how worn down FDR is. You look at pictures of him from 1944. And in one case, there was a photo that was published in the newspaper. And people that were working on the re-election campaign when they saw the photo just fell out they were like oh my gosh 
He looks half dead. This yeah. is awful. Yeah, some of those photos um, from the World War II years, late 44, early 45, um, man, I mean, he just looks like death warmed over. Yeah. Well, and, and now we know that he was facing some serious health issues at the time. He uh, he was dying. I mean, it, yeah. there's there's no other way to put it. You know, his doctors were running tests on him and he was in bad health. He really shouldn't have run for reelection. But again, a there wasn't really a good candidate to take over for him. Exactly. And, and this is probably beyond our scope today, but um, the decision to put Truman on the, the ballot as his running mate versus Henry Wallace, who he had forced on the ballot in 1940, um, speaks to kind of some of those shifts that have that are happening and, and trying to think of, well, you know, maybe I won't survive. Yeah, to live through this term, but he felt it important to kind of see things through. He felt it important for morale, for continuity, because yeah. in 1944, you know, we were starting to see a glimmer of hope. We were starting to see that maybe the tide had turned. Maybe this was all coming to an end, but we still needed to make this final push. That, yep. that final push towards bringing down the Nazi regime, you know, wrapping up the war in the Pacific. And he felt like he needed to go forward. But I think that I think that there were more successes than failures in the third term. And I think the largest success was in balancing all of the the disparate battles domestically, internationally, various parts of the globe. And again, it shows Roosevelt's leadership in that he was able to rally his administration. He was able to rally the, the military. He was able to rally our industrial resources. And he was able to rally, by and large, the public to prosecute this war this this war on a, a larger scale than we had seen previously, but to prosecute this war to the end, and it, it took so much effort, and ultimately, ultimately, very arguably, his life. But he did it. He achieved that. Um, were there mistakes? Of course, but ultimately. The war ending as it did in a victory means that I think we have to chalk up the third term as, by and large, being overall a success. Definitely. I mean, if I'm looking at it, if, if you, know, you take everything into consideration, goodness sakes, how can that be anything but, um, but a success? I think any president that was facing um, those difficulties and those challenges um man if you could come out of that with you know we, we've beaten back 
Japan. Um, if you look at 1944, we're, we're landing troops in Europe. Um, I know Stalin would argue it was a little later than he would have liked, okay, but um, that's not the, the point here. You've got troops in Europe, we're pushing the Japanese back. Um, I mean, that sounds pretty successful to me. Well, and, and you know, some of the points, and, and it is important to look at some of the the failures or the bad points of the third term, case in point, Japanese-American internment. Um, Roosevelt was critici- has been later criticized for kind of laying the groundwork for what became the Cold War by not being quite as strong as he should have been with Stalin. And really, that's kind of, you know, that was something that I think just kind of had to wait for the fourth term and who knows how things would have gone if FDR had been in charge for the post-war planning, if, if there may have been a way to avoid the cold war, but that was something that he, he had to kind of kick that can down the road. We just needed to keep the Soviet union happy and keep them fighting against the Nazis until the U.S. could really turn its attention towards Europe and the yeah. European theater. Um, so, yes, there were some issues. There were there were serious issues. You know, Japanese American internment, um, and even some violations of personal freedoms and liberties in the U.S. And yes, we should talk about those things. And yes, they were wrong. And yes, we should critique that. It also gets to, you know, it's it's hard at times to judge from where we're at versus being in those shoes. Would we have done things differently? And I, I think that it behooves us to take that hard look at ourselves. And especially considering that, you know, we're in a time that we're we're facing some big challenges on our own. We're facing yep. some, we're facing legacies and, and inequities that have been a part of the United States, even before there was a United States. Yeah. And I think it's important to consider what we do now and how people may look at us 20 years down the line or 50 years or a hundred years, would they look back and say that we did wrong? Would they say that we weren't doing enough or that we were, we were active participants in, in something that was bad. Um, Ultimately history will be written and we will be judged by people who are not even born. But I do think it important to consider and that's one thing that I, I, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about history is considering those points and considering why people decided to do what they did. And then taking that to the present day and thinking in my decisions, how do I want to be judged? How do I want people in the future to see me and to understand my motivations and, and hopefully I try and aim and I'm 
human like anybody else, so I probably get it wrong as well. Exactly. But I hope that in my actions and in my motivations that people from the future will see me in a good light and see that even when I make mistakes, maybe it was the wrong thing to do. Maybe I had good motivations for it. That's all we can do, right? Exactly. <laughs> Just do the best we can and and hope uh, history will be kind to us. Well, Jerry, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating talk today um, on the third term of, of FDR. And um, listeners out there, I would highly suggest you go check out the Presidency's podcast. Jerry, my friend, thank you very much. You guys, um, y'all stay safe out there. And um, we'll see you next time, buddy. Thank you so much, Sean. It was great being on. Thank you, sir. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, so that's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you really enjoyed the show, first of all, um, let me encourage you to go check out the Presidency's podcast. There's lots of great information over there. If you have any questions or comments, please shoot me an email. The email address, as always, is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. Join the Facebook group. Follow me on Twitter. Twitter is at AmericanHisCast. And always, please go over to iTunes and give us a five-star review so other people can find the show. Alrighty then, until next time, y'all have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. Oh,